People of God in Christ, have you noticed how music has taken over our culture? Uh, I, I don't even know where to start, but let's let's start with this: that if you if you want to be with it, although I'm not uh, I'm not sure that's presently with it language. Um, so if you want to be hip, oh wait, that dates me even worse. So the point is this: that music is the thing. These days, whether on the radio, yeah, the radio is still around, uh, but otherwise uh, on any of the current music services from YouTube to music, uh, Amazon Music to Apple Music uh, to Pandora or Spotify, even by the sheer number of those services, we can see that music is king. And yet it really isn't for most people. Uh, you may have your favorite song, whether country or rock or easy listening, but chances are, like me, you don't really understand music all that well, at least not by way of your favorite three, four, or five-minute song. Music really is quite a mysterious thing. Uh, it's probably the closest thing our our secular culture gets, the closest a way it gets to uh, all things spiritual. Uh, music is spirituality these days. And, and the broader church has, has certainly bought in, as we say, and has replaced so much of traditional worship with, you guessed it, with music. Well, I make a big deal of music this morning, not because I've bought in. In other words, I'm not looking this morning to jerk on your emotions by the right tune or the most effective chord progression. But for the sake of a metaphor, I want to say that the story of salvation, uh, the history of redemption, is like a song. Just as the composer of a song uh, preferably not a country music song, with apologies to those who maybe like that genre. I hope you don't like it too much. But, uh, but just as a composer or a songwriter composes a song, uh, so God has composed even all of history. When we hear the, the story of Joseph, of his life uh, and suffering and success, we are hearing a song. And just as a composer might uh, give you a, a quiet part uh, to his song in, in order to set up the next loud uh, and energetic part, um, such as what we have, I think, in Genesis 40. All the way along now, we've, we've, uh, we've been tempted to ask, I think, well, why, why all the detail? Why is the last fifth, if not fourth, of the book of Genesis dedicated to the story of Joseph? Even more, why be given, as we are, the details that we get now in Genesis 40? Well, the answer is that it sets up, really, the next chapter. The events of how Joseph came to be the interpreter of Pharaoh's dreams. The importance of this story really comes in the next chapter, and the events of Genesis 40 prepare us to hear what happens then. So 
why not just combine chapter 40 and 41 in order to hear that most important part? But as much as God is a good storyteller, as we've said in the past, as much as we um, find here the the marvelous composition of a song, yet there is much to be learned, uh, much that we are told and, and can learn and apply to our lives in Genesis 40. What we learn here, to give you uh, the thesis up front, is that God is in the business of revelation. The doctrine of revelation, that's our, our focus this morning. God not only has a plan, He is willing to make His plan known. And, uh, and He makes His plan known ahead of time, in case we might think that he is like us, only figuring things out as he goes along. But God never, never figures things out as he goes along. He, he never really reacts even to what he sees happening in the world. Instead, as we say, he has foreordained all things that shall come to pass. And this will apply not only gloriously to our salvation in Christ, but even to our daily lives as well. So let's get started. First, the setup. Because that's really what, as I said, is happening in Genesis 40. In this chapter, we see Joseph interpreting the dreams of two fellow prisoners with him by way of Pharaoh's orders. Joseph, of course is in prison because he did the right thing. That in itself uh, is an important lesson. Uh, It wasn't put that way last time, but uh, let's put it that way now. Uh, We have this really bad habit of uh, thinking to ourselves and even teaching our children that if you do the right thing, only good things will come your way. Uh, We have this really bad habit that we need to drop. Uh, It's kind of a Christian version of karma, maybe. Uh, But the point is that it's not what God teaches in His Word. What the Bible actually teaches is, is that if you do the right thing, like Joseph did, you might very well end up in prison. Or in the case of our Lord, you might end up on a cross if you do the right thing. Where we got this idea, I don't know, that, uh, that if you do the right thing, everything will work out well. Uh, our Lord even gave full disclosure, did He not, that uh, if they persecuted Him, they will persecute you. Uh, if you follow Him, uh, they will persecute you as they did him. Or as the Apostle Paul put it, uh, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So Joseph is in prison uh, even uh, because, even exactly because, he did the right thing. Uh, The two other men were in prison because they did the wrong thing. Although it, it might appear that they're Offenses were rather trivial, making them the victims of a rather fastidious pharaoh. But even that, I think, is is part of the rest of the story. We're dealing here with a a king who is a curmudgeon, 
probably the nicest thing to say about him. Uh, he, he is a difficult man uh, who also has the authority to make life difficult, life even miserable for anyone who doesn't meet his demands. This understanding of the scene, I think, is supported by verse 2, which simply says, And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers, the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in custody of the house of the captain of the guard in the prison where Joseph was confined. So we have Jacob falsely accused. Uh, We have a curmudgeonly king. And uh, we have two officers who are in prison, probably for rather trivial reasons, simply because they perhaps didn't meet some exacting demand of their master. And yet into that mix comes the, the providence of God. It's a good lesson for you and me that, that as we th- see things go awry, as we even see injustice occurring by the whims of a dictator, we, we tend to think that things are, are out of control, things are beyond hope. Instead, it's quite possibly the setup of God himself. I, I, I think of a, a much later event when uh, the people of Israel were leaving Egypt Uh, after the ten plagues that God sent upon Pharaoh and his people, about the time things were looking up for Israel, about the time Israel thought their escape was a cinch, God instructed Moses to turn the people back and to go camp for the night in the worst possible strategic location. I trust you remember the story in Exodus 14. It records when the Lord's Then the Lord said to Moses, Tell the people of Israel to turn back. When you're fleeing from slavery, you don't turn back. And yet, that's what God commanded Moses to have Israel do. When they were making their escape and putting good distance between them and their enemies, that's when God said, Turn back and encamp facing the sea. Why would you ever do that? Well, the answer is that you wouldn't. But God would. Because He's not concerned about the power of His enemies. Uh, It was His doing to bring about the release of His people from slavery in the first place. Therefore, He is free, and that's what we mean by the sovereignty of God. He is free to give an orchestrated demonstration of His authority and power. Apparently, it wasn't enough for God to deliver his people when his intention was not just to deliver them, but to make an abundantly clear demonstration of his power and authority. Of course, Moses had to bear the brunt of God's demonstration. Uh, Talk about making a bad name for yourself. The people followed Moses. They did what he instructed, even as Moses did what God commanded, only to find themselves in a worse fix than they were in before. But it was all a setup. 
because God certainly knew what he was doing. That's the thing for us to remember that God always, always knows what he is doing. And so the scene was set through the, through the gross strategic error of Moses, that is from the perspective of the people. But the scene was set for God to display his glory. Uh, wasn't there enough glory for God by way of the ten plagues that he sent? Apparently not, because God himself orchestrated the event of the great parting of the Red Sea. Once again, to make it clear to his people and to the world that he is the God who saves his people. He is the God who does so purely by grace. Even as his people moaned and complained, as you and I would have as well, even as they blamed Moses for putting them in such a doomed position, So God displayed his glory. He parted the Red Sea. He vindicated his man Moses. And he saved his people. We have the same thing here with Joseph. It's a setup. On one hand, who cares about these two men, both in prison, likely for for silly things? Who cares about their dreams? The one uh, dream prophesying his deliverance, the other dream prophesying the man's demise. Who cares, except that God is giving these dreams, and God had even placed Joseph next to them in prison the morning after their dreams in order to interpret their dreams. The one, the chief cupbearer, dreamed that he was serving Pharaoh again. The other, the chief baker, dreamed that the birds were eating what he would otherwise serve to the king. And uh, isn't the interpretation somewhat obvious? I think the amazing thing, the miracle, in fact, is not Joseph's interpretation, but that the interpretation came true. That, of course, was the measure of a prophet's ability and and integrity if what he said came true. In this case, it did come true. The cupbearer was restored to his position and to his duties, and the baker was summarily executed by the whim of Pharaoh the king. And so on one hand, we're, we're only seeing what we need to see to understand what happens next. Uh, on the other hand, we, we come to a point to consider, as we should, the place of dreams in Scripture. The second point is the place of dreams. Uh, in our own day, dreams are rather inconsequential, uh, I'm sure there are uh, a number of psychologists or psychiatrists who, who would disagree. But uh, in my opinion, if you want to get caught up in a web of speculation, uncertainty, and even self-deception, uh, start trying to analyze your dreams. Uh, there are obvious exceptions, of course. If you watch a scary movie, then expect to have a scary dream. Uh, no mystery there, except that your dream might come the second night after uh, watching the scary movie and not right after. But, but what we see in Scripture is that God often did use dreams to speak, to prophesy what he would do. The best example is uh, the dream that Joseph had 
No, not the Genesis Joseph, but the husband betrothed to uh, the mother of our Lord. Uh, Mary received her notification from God by visitation. Uh, an angel appeared to her. Uh, Joseph had a dream. Uh, Matthew 1 verse 20 records that as he considered whether he should break off his engagement to Mary uh, in light of the fact that she was pregnant, even in that day they knew what it meant when a woman was pregnant, uh, yet an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. The translation is, she hasn't been unfaithful to you, Joseph. In fact, she has been faithful to the Lord, saying to the angel that visited her, let it be done to me according to your word. But the point is that it was a dream uh, that this Joseph received. And of course, it ought to... uh, make us remember the dreams that the earlier Joseph had. He was binding sheaves in the field in his dream. His sheaf, uh, along with those that his brothers had bound and and formed, uh, stood up. Uh, As strange as that was, then the sheaves of his brothers bowed down to his sheaf. And then in the second dream, the sun, moon, and stars all together bowed down to Joseph. And and because we know the story, we know that Joseph was not suffering from poor sleep or indigestion, but that God was speaking, even making known momentous things that were to come. Dreams are important in the Bible. We need to recognize that. But we also need to see that dreams were also deceptive at other times. In in Jeremiah 23, verse 28, God spoke through the prophet to say, Let the prophet who has a dream tell the dream, but let him who has my word speak my word faithfully. The words of the, of the prophet are reminiscent of, uh, of the prophet Elijah on Mount Carmel, Uh, when he mocked and tormented the false prophets of Baal, saying, Cry aloud, uh, for he is is a god. Either he's musing, or he's in the bathroom at the moment, or, um, or, or he's on a journey. He's out of the office for the day and can't be reached. Or maybe your god, maybe he's just asleep, and you haven't, you haven't screamed loud enough to wake him up. Well, in a similar kind of facetious way, God says through Jeremiah, go ahead and we'll listen. Let the prophet who has a dream tell his dream, but let the one who has my word preach my word. So here's the third point, the word of God. Here is the untold, often neglected significance of the preaching of God's word each Lord's Day. Uh, On one hand, it's it's customary. It's it's traditional. It's just what you do at church, right? You, a sermon needs to be preached uh, each Sunday, twice if there are two services. But the point is this, that, that the one who has the word of God is to preach the word of God. 
the people who possess the word of God are called upon to hear its proclamation each Lord's Day. It's the proclamation of truth into a world of falsehood. It's the declaration of the king. It's the declaration of the king pronounced into a a realm ruled by the evil one. I want want you to think about that, uh, that, that here we are each Lord's Day. You know what we're doing right now? We're committing treason. By our worship of God, we are being treasonous against the ruler of this world. You don't have to go to China or to Indonesia or to, or to the Sudan to worship illegally. You're worshiping illegally right now. The ruler of this world prohibits the very worship that you are offering right now to God and, and, and to Christ. So, so if you want worship to be more exciting, then just understand better what is happening here. What you're doing right now, it, it kind of fits with that uh, idea about drama in worship. Uh, some people say, we need, we need the worship service to be more exciting, more, more dramatic. Uh, let's have a skit. Let's have the kids act out a Bible story. But the better idea is this. If you want more excitement in your worship, if you want the service to be more dramatic, then put more money in the offering plate. That's dramatic. Well, I'm kidding, of course. I I had a a comment this week on our church's Facebook page that said, uh, it said, quote, religion gives con men the opportunity to legally scam people, end quote. So I responded, uh, pointing out that uh, the post wasn't any kind of an appeal for money and that if this person comes to visit our church, he should leave his money at home. I hate preaching about giving uh, within the church. Most preachers do. But yes, if, if you want to be more dramatic, then make it more dramatic for yourself. But that can happen in a number of ways, the easiest of which is simply to understand what you're doing here, that you're committing treason against the ruler of this world by worshiping God especially as you worship God, acknowledging Christ as your Savior and your Lord. So dreams are one thing. We must acknowledge that God has sometimes used dreams as a means of revelation. But what if Joseph's interpretations had not come true? The dreams uh, would have just remained dreams. In other words, the thing that made the dreams a revelation from God was that Joseph's interpretations came true. So so that the point was not so much the dream, but the word of God. And in our own day, should we show up at church for the exchange exchange of dreams? What did did you dream last night uh, or over the past week? I dreamed this. Another person, uh, I dreamed this. Okay, now what do we do? Well, let's wait and see whose dream comes true. Aren't you glad that's not the way God works and speaks in our day? That might sound, you know, all so spiritual, uh, 
But wouldn't it be better if we could come here to just hear the full proclamation of God's truth without having to wait to see whether it comes true? And brothers and sisters, that's exactly what we do have. Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people, for unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. Proclamation. It is finished, said Jesus from the cross. Proclamation. He is not here, for he has risen, just as he said he would. Proclamation. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Proclamation. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Proclamation is what we're all about as we proclaim the very word of God. Can we hear it? The word of God is a gracious word. Even more, the word of God is is, is a proclamation of what God has done, of what is true in this world of falsehood and deception. And so it reveals the, the wicked, foolish unbelief of sinners who refuse the proclamation. And you might say, oh, but uh, I, I, I don't know whether it's really true. But if you, can, if you can raise that objection without tears in your eyes, tears for the thought that it might not be true, then, then you've tipped your hand. You've, you've only revealed that you're raising objections out of stubborn unbelief. The only credible objection would be to say with tears, oh, that it were true that though I die, yet shall I live. But for someone only to say, hmm, not sure if that's true, then either you didn't hear it right, or you're just flexing the muscle and exhibiting the arrogance of your own pride and unbelief. Next Sunday, the Lord willing, we're going to going to sit together at the table of our Lord for the sacrament of Holy Communion. Next Lord's Day, your elders will be serving up a feast for you. And the, and the point will be that uh, those who believe might know all the more that it is true. The Word of God has established it and proclaimed it, and God confirms it to us in the truth, or as the truth, in the sacrament. And again, if, if all a person can say in their hearts is, is uh, nope, not ready, uh, how do I know if it's true? Then doesn't that reveal a, a self-condemning heart to stand in judgment of the Word of God, to, to casually, analytically uh, doubt the best news that you could ever hear? If that's your response to the gospel, then then at least give yourself some credibility by shedding a few tears and saying, if only I could believe. A Savior has come into this world. He has done the work for the salvation that I need. My sin is covered. Death is defeated. Hell is vanquished. 
Oh, if only I could believe. But better even than a credible unbelief. Why not take up a credible faith? Yes, God has used dreams to reveal His truth, His mastery to reveal His mastery of events, uh, to show even His orchestration of what's going to happen. But the point even of the dreams was to lead to a clear proclamation of His truth, His saving truth, the cupbearer was restored. The baker was executed. But the cupbearer did not remember Joseph and forgot him. And you might go out from this place, uh, from this room, from this proclamation of God's word. Uh, you, You might just return to your path leading to death and hell. But why would you do that? Why wouldn't you at least grieve over your own unbelief rather than confidently standing in judgment of God's Word? Instead, hear the Word of God and believe. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of God. It is the proclamation of what has been done by God for your salvation. Put pride aside and take up faith. Believe and rejoice in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. Thank you, O God, for the, the revelation that you have given recorded in your word, which itself is revelation. We thank you that you make things known before they happened to show that you indeed were doing them. And now on this side of the cross and the resurrection of Christ, may we not think of receiving dreams, but may we with faith receive your word and its proclamation of who Christ is, of what He has done, and of how we are saved in Him. Grant us, O God, ears to hear, that we might truly hear Your Word and take our hope and find our joy and experience peace by looking to Christ as our Savior. In His name we pray. Amen.